0: Hello, everyone. You all right? Everyone's all right? Well, if you'd like to keep your Bible open in front of you, uh, we'll think about these verses together. I'd like to think about it twice over uh, from the perspective of Jesus and these as formative experiences for Jesus. But then just thinking about what it means for us. Uh, And you've heard it said that Jesus is our example. And I think one of the amazing things about this passage is it shows you what was so key to Jesus, in terms of him discerning his identity, knowing who he was, and also knowing how he was empowered to do the stuff that God called him to do. And likewise, for us, it's important that we know who we are, we know who our God is, and that we likewise are empowered to do the things that God has called us uniquely to do. And there's a lot in this passage that can help us with that. So, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized. Two. This was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He was about 30 years old. And uh, when he went to be baptised, we know from, from another of the Gospel accounts that, that John the Baptist was a bit you know, weirded out by this because he knew that before him was the the sinless son of God, the lamb of God that was to take away the sin of the world. And, and he said, well, you know, why are you being baptized? You know, I, I don't want to do that. You know, you need to do something for me. I need your help, not the other way around. And Jesus used this phrase. He said, it's, it's right to do it to fulfill all righteousness. And the thing that we, we can look at there uh, is that, as was the case um, then, Now when we have baptisms down at Cooper and Jordan's School, they're, they're total immersion baptisms where you go under the water completely and come back up. And that water baptism was a symbol of Jesus' death on the cross to fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dead. He went to the grave three days. He rose again from the dead, conquered death itself. And that picture of him going down into the water is a picture of his death and then coming back up to new life. And so that was the the picture, really, of the work of redemption, the work of him saving you and me, that Jesus was going to die for our sins, be raised to life. And so that picture was so important. So Jesus was baptised, and we read about what happened that day when he was baptised. It says that he was praying, which is interesting, the Son of God praying. Like you and I, Jesus was dependent on the Father. He came like one of us and we'll be thinking about that quite a lot over the next few minutes that Jesus was like us he was the son of god but he came as a human being fully god and fully a human man and actually like us he was dependent on the father he he needed to pray to the father he asked the father to help him with the things that he needed he needed the father to give him direction in life so he was praying And it says that as he prayed, you can see that in in verse 22, that the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who empowered his ministry filled him. And it says that at the same time a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Jesus, like us, was totally dependent on the Father, totally dependent on the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And like us, it made such a difference for Jesus to know that he was a loved child of God, that God the Father loved him, that he was pleased with him, that he had good plans for him. And Jesus, when he heard these words from the Father, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. There was a couple of things going on here. Jesus was and is the unique Son of God, and it's interesting that in this statement there are a couple of verses from the Old Testament that spoke of uh, a figure, or, or you know, if you didn't know better, you might think it was different figures uh, that were going to come forth and, and have a significant role. And when God the Father spoke this over Jesus, it was a bringing together of those uh, those roles, those figures uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, and it was like God saying, this is Jesus. So if you, if you read Psalm 2, it's known as a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that would speak about God's king, this chosen Messiah. And in verse 7 of Psalm 2, I'll read it for you. You don't have to go there. Um, it says this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Very similar wording. And it was like God was saying this promised Messiah from Scripture, this promised king that's going to come and rule with my justice and my love. That was Jesus. But likewise, another kind of figure that we see in the Old Testament, a promised figure, was the servant that we read about in Isaiah. Isaiah spoke about this servant of the Lord, this servant of the Lord that far from being this kind of kingly kind of figure that would like rule with a rod of iron who would like, you know, crush the nations and bring his justice and all that. This servant that we read about in Isaiah was this broken figure, this almost worm-like person who would go through uh, some horrendous thing that we read about. He would be disfigured in it. he He would be like an atoning sacrifice for the people. He would be afflicted for the sake of the people. And again, that verse, uh, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. We read it also Mark 1.11, uh, where it says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Sounds a bit like this, doesn't it? Isaiah 42 verse 1, speaking of the servant of the Lord. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. My chosen one in whom I delight. Sounds a bit like my son in whom I am well pleased. So when God said these words to Jesus at his baptism, it was like saying this man is the servant that Isaiah saw that would die for the sake of the world. This Jesus is my son, the Messiah, the coming king. And so Jesus brought together these different roles, these different people from scripture that uh, the Israelites were waiting for, were hoping for, were longing for. But it wasn't just about Jesus' identity and affirming uh, in the sight of others his unique role, the uniqueness of him being the Son of God. On a very kind of normal, emotional, human level, these words would have just affirmed Jesus on a deep level. That his Father loved him and was pleased with him. And it's interesting, I'm sure you've heard it many times, that this was the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus hasn't even done anything yet. So he hasn't gone and done loads of miracles and done loads of amazing things. You know, 30 years of sinless life is pretty impressive. But he hasn't done anything yet that we would kind of know about recorded in Scripture. So this affirmation, my son in whom I'm well pleased, these words come before he's done anything yet. And it's so important for us too, that we know that we are God's children and that he loves us, not because of what we do or because of what we don't do, but just simply because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. When the Father looks at us, when we have given our lives to Jesus, when we are in Christ, he speaks those same words of approval over us. No, we're not the son of God in the sense that Jesus was, but we are now co-heirs in Christ. And through him, we become a royal priesthood and we become adopted into the family of God, given the Holy Spirit as a seal, guaranteeing our inheritance in the saints. And the Father speaks those same words to us. You're my son, you're my daughter, in whom I delight, in whom I'm well pleased. And for Jesus, these words were so key as he was about to go through the testing that we also heard in that reading. So he was filled with the Holy Spirit, He received these words of love from the Father. And then we didn't hear all of the genealogy read out, but it spoke about the genealogy of Jesus. And like I said, Jesus was fully God, the Son of God, but he was also a human being like one of us. His favourite self-designation, the way that he referred to himself most often, was this phrase, Son of Man. And basically Jesus was affirming that he really was like one of us. And we read in this genealogy that Jesus had relatives. The virgin Birth was proof positive that he was the son of God. But he had a human mother, Mary, and this genealogy uh, follows the line of Mary. She isn't actually named in it. Women weren't often mentioned in these kind of genealogies, the official genealogies, although four women, interestingly enough, are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, uh, which, which takes a different stance on it, follows Joseph. Uh, and his line back to Abraham. But this line, the ancestral line of Mary from Jesus back to Adam, showing that he is, you know, related to all humankind, you know, that he is a saviour, not just for the Jews, but for all people. He is that chosen redeemer uh, of Genesis after the fall of man, where the Father speaks of a coming redeemer, that the the snake, the serpent, the enemy of our souls uh, would would, you know, come against him but the the, this redeemer would crush his head as a prophecy you can read about uh, in genesis of the work of the redeemer and jesus was this redeemer so he was fully god but fully a human person and again both mary and joseph were from the messianic like they were from the line of david so on a sort of human level on a sort of official level jesus was again this coming messiah so the father has said you're my son the messianic psalm, psalm 2, this coming messiah, and then his line showed that he was actually from the line of David through both uh, Joseph and Mary. So Jesus knows who he is. He's on the scene. He's been baptised. He's identified with us. He's been baptised to fulfil all righteousness. He knows the Father loves him. He knows his identity as a unique son of the living God, as the Son of God but also is aware that he has come to be like us. He's the Son of Man, and he's reliant on God. He's praying. He also knows the Word of God. He's very familiar with the Torah. He's able to quote the Scriptures. And it says that the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert. Chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Spirit. Interesting that the Spirit of God leads him into this situation. Sometimes when we get into horrible situations of temptation or struggle, perhaps it's because we've sinned or messed up or simply got it wrong, Jesus here is being fully obedient and the Spirit has created the battle. The Holy Spirit has led him into a place where he's going to be tested. So he turned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And we read that the devil came to him with these different temptations. And it's, you know, it's it's a fascinating chapter, a fascinating passage. And we think about the, the temptations of Jesus and we think like, oh yeah, the devil said that and Jesus replied by saying that. But when you think about it, this is just a terrifying ordeal. Jesus was and is the son of God. But this temptation shows that he really did become like one of us. If this was kind of like a phantom temptation, you know, it it, it didn't really mean anything. Then he would have said, when the devil came to tempt him, he would have said, Well, you know I'm the son of God. Stop wasting my time or I'll destroy you. But he didn't say anything like that. He kind of underwent a very real temptation. And in fact, this was a frightening spiritual experience. I think oftentimes we miss, actually, in a sense, the very kind of physical, spiritual nature of this experience. Either he's having this kind of like vision of the devil, and the devil's come to him in a visionary experience, Or even as Paul says, where Paul talks about revelatory encounters, he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It could be that Jesus' body was literally translated, transported to the top of the temple. I mean, when you read it, it talks about the devil basically just taking him around, tempting him in different places. You know, it says that the devil took him to the top of the temple. I mean, what did that look like? Was that a vision? Did Jesus' body literally just get taken to the top of a temple? It's a terrifying thing. It's the sort of thing you you read about when you, you hear of testimonies of people that have come out of satanic covens and they've gone into places of such deep darkness and the incredible testimonies god has delivered them again when we learn that jesus was tempted in every way and we can he can identify with us in every way this is good news for anyone that's ever been to really dark places this is as dark as it gets and jesus has gone through this and he's overcome which means that if you've ever had you know the world's worst nightmare if you've ever had something which is so dark and unholy that it just terrified you Jesus has been to darker places and he has overcome. He's gone ahead of us. So this was a time where Jesus, you know, really went through the ringer. But afterwards, and I won't speak about it because it's what you'll do next week, he really did launch then into public ministry and a ministry of signs and wonders, miracles breaking out wherever he went. And so we see that this was really a formative experience for Jesus. Jesus knew the Father's love. He knew his identity in the Father's love. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he went through testing where he was, like us, dependent on certain resources to keep going and win. Jesus had prayer. He had the Father's love. He was filled with the Spirit and he knew the Bible. And so when the devil was tempting him, it's like this was his armory, like a boxer. He had prayer. He knew the Father's love. He knew who he was. He was filled with the Spirit, and he quoted the Word of God. And through that, he grew as it were. I know we're talking about Jesus, but it was like he grew up into maturity. I mean, he was already a mature son of God. I mean, just, you know, a throwaway comment. It's interesting that when we read here about Jesus, again, the Greek, when it speaks of Jesus, when the Father's saying, you are my son in whom I'm well well pleased, my son in whom I love. The Greek there speaks of a mature son. The word is huios, which means mature. There's another word for in the New Testament which is technon, which means infantile. So sometimes when we read about being God's children, it might be the infantile word, that you are little children of God. Jesus is referred to here as a mature son. This is my mature son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet even Jesus, is mature son, needed to go through this testing time to be honed in the knowledge of who he was, growing in his confidence as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, growing in, in in a sense, fighting with the opposition, so that when he came out into the ministry that God had called him to, you know, he was able to move in that. And that's why I get on then to looking at this passage then for us, because these formative experiences of Jesus are formative for us. We likewise have a call on our lives. We're not, you know, God hasn't called us to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but He has called you to do something. And likewise, as it was for Jesus, it is for each one of us. If we're going to do the work God has given us to do, we need to know the Father's love. We need to know our identity, that He looks at you in Jesus and says, You're my beloved Son, you're my beloved daughter. And that is so anchored in our soul that in our moment of trial, in the battle, We don't suddenly kind of fall because we don't really know that we know that we know that we know that God loves us and we're his child. It's so key we know that. It's so key that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, not with our own resources, but empowered with the very Spirit of God. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, we certainly do. And that we know the Scriptures. We know them well and we're able to speak them out. So as Jesus said in the place of trial, when the devil came to him with temptation, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus went through this experience as the Son of Man, but also, in a sense, he did it to show us how we can do warfare with the devil, how we can cope. He was a trailblazer, and he showed us the way. We need to be people who know these things and do these things if we're going to do what Jesus has called us to. But just looking at this passage very briefly again with that in mind, we need to be people who pray. Again, verse 21. We need to be prayers, and as we pray, we also will see the heavens opened. When we pray, we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, your Father in heaven is a giver of good gifts. And if you, even you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will God the Father give the good gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So when we pray for the Holy Spirit, we can expect to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves to confirm to our hearts the word of God. He loves to confirm to us, and when we've given our lives to Jesus, that the Father says to us these same words, I love you, I'm pleased with you. And as we pray and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to read the Bible so that we know God's truth and his promises, so that we can be standing on those promises. And the thing is that when we do that, the trials and the temptations will come. And it might even be that the Holy Spirit leads you into that place. I remember someone once saying, You don't choose your cross, your cross chooses you. You know, we're not called to be masochists. We're not called to get into horrible situations where we go through testing for the sake of it. Actually, crosses just come. You know, a family member gets sick, you get made redundant. You know, something horrible happens at school or college, whatever it is. You know, your cross chooses you, and then in your moment of trial and temptation, how do you respond? Or even you could say God chooses it for you if you are following the will of God for your life, perhaps a cross comes that actually God has chosen, but that he knows he will enable you to get through that situation. Yes, there are times where there is a cross because we've simply done the wrong thing and we've made a terrible decision. It's all gone horribly wrong. But however it comes, we will go through trials and temptations. And in those moments, we need to know who we are. But if we will grow up in that time knowing we are God's child, growing in that revelation, reading the scriptures, praying, being filled with the spirit, we can then do the work that God has called us to do. You've got a genealogy as well. You've got a family line. You've got a history. And the truth is that there's a work for Jesus that only you can do. There's a scripture that says that God knows the plans he has for us to give us hope and a future. There's another scripture that says that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works he prepared in advance for you to do. How exciting is that? I mean, God's got ideas for your life. Before you were even born, God had in mind things that he wanted you to do so that he would be glorified. If we really believe that, then we never need to be bored again. You know, every day can be, you know, exciting, thinking, wow, God, you put me on this planet for a reason. You created me to do good things that you wanted me to do through Jesus. You know, it's amazing when we think about that. There's a work for Jesus only you can do. But if you're going to do it, without falling, without caving to temptation, without making it about you, then like Jesus, you need to be investing in these revelations. You need to be praying, knowing the Father's love, believing that he really loves you because he loves you because he loves you, standing on the word of God and growing into maturity. When I think about my life, I think about how these things have played out in my life so far. I became a Christian at the age of 20. Uh, I, went, I grew up in a Christian home, but it was a fairly kind of formal church upbringing, uh, so I, I believed in God, but I wasn't a born-again Christian. And, uh, and I went off to university at the height of kind of affluence. Um, I've heard now, I, I, someone told me the other day about 50% of nightclubs have shut down. I can't even get my head around that. Because when I was at university, it was like all anyone did. So I, I'm like wondering what people even do now. Uh, but I think it's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Because, uh, you know, when, I remember going to nightclubs and just it was just... I don't know, when I look back on it, it just seems really, really sad. Uh, But I remember going to uni, and again, it was the height of affluence. I had money in my pocket, and I did a bit of a prodigal son. You know, I went to uni, yeah, to get a degree, but my principal reason for going was just basically to have a laugh and be a bit of an idiot. And in the midst of my having a laugh and being an idiot, I got very ill and had to pull out of university. So I had to take a year up from university, came back home. And in that year, where I was basically kind of ill because of the things that I'd done... I had a permanent migraine. I remember crying out to God and saying, God, you know, I know you're real. My family all believe in you. Uh, Please help me, please. And, uh, you know, even with fairly dubious motives, I wanted to be well so I could go back to uni and carry on being an idiot. Um, God met me. He really did meet me and he healed me and he set me free. And it was just incredible. But not long after that, I remember going to a church service and I had an experience not dissimilar to this in a sense i'm not saying i'm the son of god but you know i that experience of being filled with the holy spirit And it was interesting because i didn't know unlike jesus i didn't know the bible i didn't know the teachings of scripture and i went to a church service and people were being prayed for to be filled with the holy spirit and the holy spirit came on me in such a way that i remember falling over and i went into this vision experience where I saw myself flying with Jesus. We were flying uh, along like a coastal place over the sea. And as we were flying, Jesus' right arm started to come round me and it became the wing of a dove i'd not read these scriptures i didn't know about this i found it out afterwards. i was like wow that's cool so i had no grid for this there was no kind of like subjective thing going on in my head where i was creating this scenario i just didn't know it you know so jesus i was flying with jesus and his right arm became the wing of a dove and it wrapped me up inside it and it was on fire it was like a dove on fire and i was baptized with the holy spirit filled with the holy spirit And then this vision took me into this place where I was dancing with the disciples. These disciples were doing this circle dance. And what I didn't know... Was that it was a? I didn't know about Jewish celebration dances, but it was a Jewish celebration dance. It, ju- it just looked to me like the dance when you do ring a ring of roses, where people are in a circle holding hands, they go around in a circle. I didn't know that was a Jewish dance. I had no grid for that either. But in my vision, they were doing a circle dance, celebrating that Jesus was alive, and they opened up and took me in, and I joined them in this dance. So I had this incredible experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, so overwhelming. And at the same time, I remember going to churches where they were talking a lot about the love of God the Father. There was this big emphasis on the Father heart of God. And I remember just people praying for me and just being overwhelmed when God just broke into my, my life, into my heart, and just showed me how much He loved me. And I remember just weeping and sobbing on various people's shoulders in prayer ministry where I'd just go up for prayer and I'd just be like, I'd have like bogeys everywhere. I'd just, go, oh, and just And it all looked very messy. But it was basically my heart being undone. Uh, because we don't have a defense for love. We have a defense for many things, but love exposes us. We don't have a defense for it. And when God shows us his love, it just undoes you. It just wrecks you. And I had this love of the Father, and the Father saying to me, Mark, you're my son, and I love you, and with you I'm well pleased. And then I did get into praying, and I did get into reading the Scriptures. And to cut a long story a bit shorter, um, you know, I then eventually went off to Bible college, And they did a curacy in the Church of England. Curacy is like an apprenticeship in being a vicar, basically. You kind of follow another vicar around. So Chris has been doing it. And um, I didn't realize I had a curate in front of me. I'll kind of think about what I'm saying before I say it now. Um, And uh, so it's a bit like an apprenticeship in being a vicar. And um, that became, in a sense, my trial time. I had a very odd experience of being a curate. Actually, being a curate in the church was quite good. I liked leading and preaching and things. I had these experiences. Again, I didn't choose my cross. My cross chose me, Uh, but I got to choose how I responded to it. When I moved into my curate's house, I kept smelling gas everywhere. Uh, There was a gas leak that no one else knew about. I kept smelling it. It made me quite insecure, but eventually I called someone out, and they said, yeah, there's a gas leak under your house. So They they had to seal off this gas pipe under the house and re-pipe all around the house. It was a bit of an eyesore. Not long after, I kept smelling gas again uh, and they came out again and this time the gas meter was leaking so they changed the gas meter. Not long after that I had a friend who moved in with me, a mate who was a bit of a hippie. His dad was literally like a hippie, lived in a caravan. And he didn't have a lot of respect for staff. He's a, he's a great guy. He was actually at my, came to my wedding. Um, but he, he just didn't do things. And not long after he moved in uh, I went into the kitchen and he just lit a gas ring. but um, He put on a gas ring but not lit it. So, just gas just seeping into the house. The whole place reeked of gas. It turned on a gas ring, not lit it, and then just left the house. And it was just this moment where, um, you know, if I could just replay the whole thing, I would. Um, I just decided in that moment I wasn't safe. And I decided in that moment that irrational things happen. And basically, from that day forward, I began uh, a perverse love affair with obsessive compulsive thinking and behaviour whereby suddenly I couldn't take anything for granted anymore because irrational things happen. You can't just trust a tap is off because irrational things happen, so someone could have left the tap on. Uh, and actually this same friend as well. There was a time where he'd left the shower on and left, gone into his room, and the, the ho- hose had fallen on the floor in the bathroom so water's literally coming through the ceiling into the kitchen so it's like there's water coming through the ceiling So, and it got to the stage where I just wouldn't trust that he'd have turned things off so he'd go to bed at like midnight and I'd be at bed, going to bed every night at like one in the morning so I'd be checking everything after him and it got to the stage where if any I don't know if this speaks to any of you um, when you get into this whole obsessive thing you stop believing yourself. Even you check it, and you don't believe what you check. So you check again, and it just spirals. It just grows. And I'm sure the devil was there, lying to me, telling me I wasn't safe, making me afraid. Uh, and actually, I said to my mate after a while, I was like, "I said, Joe, I'm a mess. You need to leave. You need to move out so I can get my life back together. I don't think I can do it while you're still living here, mate." So he had to, you know, leave. Um, but it was, it was. It's fine. He got married. Had a lovely, you know. He's doing well. But it was just such a distressing time. And even today, I still struggle. Even today, I have sleepless nights where I don't, as the scripture says, take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. I let anxiety have a foothold. And sometimes it can take over me for an hour or a couple of hours or an evening. But it's nothing like it was when I was in Salisbury. And I had to fight. I had to fight. You know, I talk about spiritual experiences like the, the dove thing and the wing, but, you know, I'm not talking about Christian hype. I'm talking about stuff that you need to get through this life and to do the stuff God's calling you to. God knew that he had call cool on my life and he knew I needed and experienced the Holy Spirit. And when I had that experience and I committed myself to being a person of the Spirit that was daily asking for the Holy Spirit to fill me, as I invested in that revelation that the Father loved me, as I tried to get into the Scriptures and be a person of prayer, those things got me through my curacy. You know, I'd have so many nights where I just literally wouldn't sleep, and I'd just be, like, turning up to lead services, having had, like, an hour's sleep, because i have been checking stuff till, like, five in the morning or something, and, you know, that was my testing time, and it certainly wasn't fun, and I'm so glad that I'm beyond it now, but one of the things where I am now is that I have such a compassion for people, and I know that I know that I know it's not about me. I have so little confidence in my own ability. You know, I know that I don't have the right words to say. I know that... I can't do anything that that is of any eternal value, that I need God. And sometimes when I look at people that have kind of not gone through anything and they're full of it and they've read the latest books and, you know, they're kind of, you know, if if only we did this and this and we ought to do this and should do this and must do this and everyone's on a road to burnout, I kind of worry that eventually there's going to be a crash because the place where the spirit flows is the place of humility when we know that we don't have it together but God does and that God uses jars of clay, and he uses broken people, but he's also a God that's really kind and likes to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He's a God that doesn't leave us in brokenness, but he puts us back together. And if we will come through the trial place, the testing place, in the power of the Spirit, knowing that we know that we know that he loves us, then we are then in a place where we are contenders, we are positioned to do the thing that God has called us to do. What has God called you to do? Why are you here? I don't know your genealogy. I don't know your family line. But I know God's placed you here to know him eternally. But even before you go to be with him in heaven forever, there's a work for Jesus that only you can do. At the moment, and I'm not saying I'm going to stop in the next five minutes, at the moment I'm a vicar in the Church of England. But I feel called to be a minister of the gospel. I feel called to share God's heart and the message of salvation through Jesus Christ with as many people as I can. And to be that person and to do that role, I've had to come through a pace of testing and trial so I don't make it about me. So I'm not tempted to make it about me and crash and burn. I'm, sor- I'm sure I'll make many, many mistakes. And one of the infuriating things about the testing thing is it happens over and over again. You might have a season of this, the season of the wilderness, but let's not forget Jesus has still got Gethsemane coming. So you know there are, there are seasons, like an onion where you get unraveled. There's different bits of pride that God wants to deal with, different insecurities he wants to deal with. But actually, if we will commit to a life of knowing the Father's love, of being filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing that we can't do it in our own strength, of getting to grips with the Word of God and standing on the Word of God, then God will bring us through trial into the amazing place of the next sermon next week, which is public ministry. It's doing the stuff God has called you to do. And when you get to that place, when you're doing the stuff, you remember when God was with you in the wilderness. When you were looking at the mirror at five in the morning, wondering how you're going to go through the next day, you know that Jesus was with you, looking in that mirror with you. And that knowledge of his compassion and his love and his mercy for you, you take that then into the public ministry place. You take that with you. You take your victories. You take your knowledge of the compassion of God into the thing that God has called you to do. And the devil is absolutely terrified of it. The devil is terrified of a life that has received mercy, a life that knows grace, a life that is full of the Holy Spirit, not of human wisdom or human ability, but the stuff of God and his kingdom. That kind of a life can do damage to the kingdom of darkness. And it's the life that every one of us is called to. I'd just like you to close your eyes for a minute. I'd like to pray for each one of us that God would really speak to us tonight of who we are, who you are in him, of his love for you, his fathering of you, that he would even communicate to you and remind you that in the testing times you have already had in your lives you might be thinking about things you've gone through, hearing about my experiences, thinking, well, I didn't have that, but I had this. God wants to show you that he was with you in it. Perhaps you're still going through something like that, and God wants you to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel that he'll bring you through. And Not he only will he bring you through, he will bring you through into the very thing that he's calling you to do. Let's pray. Father, I do pray through Jesus that you would pour out your Spirit on us again. Lord Jesus, even as you prayed, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit came on you. I ask, Father, through Jesus, that you would pour out your Spirit on each one of us here and now. We wait on you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, we honour you, we bless you. Please come. Lord Jesus, we knew it was so vital for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to receive those words from the Father And even now, Lord, I pray you bless every person in this building with a discernible sense of your presence and all the fruit of the Spirit, your presence, which brings that awareness of your peace, of your joy, of your faithfulness. And Lord, correspondingly, would you speak to every heart and mind in this building that word that addresses us as sons and daughters. Help each one of us now to hear And to come into alignment with the truth that we are your beloved sons and daughters. I am your child in whom you delight. You love me. You don't just love the person sat next to me. You love me. You know me. You know my mistakes. You know I'm a bit of a Muppet. But you love me anyway. You've got good plans for my life. Holy Spirit, come and just reveal that to us even now.